Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we find out about photosynthesis, light and how we can better use the sun's light for our advantage. So if you have a greenhouse, it's a great way of capturing light and getting it to work for you to help grow your crops. But could we put solar panels on greenhouses and make them more efficient? And when does it make sense not to? Plus, how does solar... Plus, making solar panels that work at night and trying to understand in detail the choices in the photosynthetic process. Now when it comes to solar power, inevitably critics come up and say, well, solar panels are great and all, but what happens if it's cloudy? And they can't generate any power at night. Now aside from the obvious fact that using battery storage can help boost the energy output of solar cells to be more than sufficient for day and night, there's other things that we need to play here. Because it's still a pretty logical concern. If you have a solar panel, it will work 50% of the time, more or less. So what if solar cells still worked at night? And that is exactly what Professor Jeremy Mundy from UC Davis's Department of Electrical Computer Engineering, together with Tristan Deppi, have been investigating and published in the journal ACS Photonics. Now, normally you would say, well, solar power absorbs in light from the sun, and uses that to generate heat, and from so creating electricity. That's the photovoltaic effect. But pretty much their idea was to try and reverse that develop solar cells that can generate small amounts of power, so not exactly the same efficiency as daytime production, but non-zero power at night. And it works basically the same way as a normal solar cell works, but in reverse. Taking on it the principle of radiant heat, and this is a pretty self-explanatory one, but basically that if an object is hot compared to its surroundings, it'll radiate heat as infrared light. That's what you see when you look for something with a thermal camera, that radiant heat in a form of light. A conventional solar cell is cool compared to the sun, so it absorbs light. But space at night is really, really cold. And if you have a warm object and you point it at the sky, that heat will radiate from itself out towards space, the sky. This idea of radiating heat at night has been used to cool things for hundreds and hundreds of years. That's not novel or new. But these scientists have been trying to find a way to use that in together with a new type of thermoradiative cell that generates power by radiating its heat to its surrounding. So the researchers use the cell's absorbed heat from the daytime that radiates back out at night and tried to find a way to capture that waste heat. This is often used in a heat recovery device in a plant. When you boil a large amount of water or you have a hot process in an industrial power plant, you want to try and recover that waste heat and capture that waste heat and use its energy a second time or third or fourth. So what if they took one of these devices and put it in a warm area and pointed at the sky? So basically to take a thermoradiative cell and point it at the night sky, it would emit infrared light because it's warmer than space and effectively you could capture that process. You could send off that radiant heat and reclaim that leftover energy that's radiated out and use it to generate electricity. So a regular solar cell generates power by absorbing sunlight, which causes a voltage to appear across the device, which enables current to flow. 
That's a conventional photovoltaic cell. In this device, light is emitted, radiated heat, back into space, and the voltage goes in the opposite generation. But you actually still generate power. Of course, you have to use different materials and have a different setup. But the principle, the physics underlying it, is the same, just in reverse. Instead of absorbing radiant heat from the sun and the light in, you are sending it out back to space, or the sun. Obviously, no sun at night. Now, with this type of cell technique, you can generate power pretty much around the clock if you combine these two things together. And it generates about 50 watts of power per square meter, which is a fraction of what a conventional solar cell does. About 25% to be precise. But it's still significantly, and importantly, non-zero, which means you would have a device that is able to generate electricity, if combined with a conventional photovoltaic, during the daytime, as well as during the nighttime. And that has a lot of interest for people with grid solutions because it means that you don't need to rely solely on large battery scale solutions if you could have uh, a more all-arounder type photovoltaic. So there's some great work from UC Davis published in the journal ACS Photonics. Now solar panels are great at harnessing the sunlight and turning it into electricity, but they're not the only game in town when it comes to absorbing sunlight and making something pretty useful out of it. After all, plants have been doing that since well, the Earth came around and plants developed. So photosynthesis and the process of absorbing sunlight and turning that through a biochemical reaction into something useful, growth and so on, has been going around in plants for millennia. More than that, millions of years to be honest. So how can these two things work together? Because if you stuck a whole bunch of solar panels over your farm, then that doesn't leave enough sunlight for the plants to grow. And we have looked at in the past ways that people can mix and match, putting solar panels in a grazing field, for example, letting the grass grow in between the fields and then bringing in sheep or other cattle to graze on that grass, keeping the plants out of the way of the solar panels and getting basically a two-for-one benefit of the field, generating electricity from what would otherwise been empty grassland or a grazing field. So that's one idea. But another idea developed out of North Carolina State University by Brendan O'Connor, who's an associate professor of mechanical aerospace engineering at NC State, has been looking at a pretty interesting technique to turn a greenhouse into something much more efficient. In fact, to make it completely energy neutral. Now, a greenhouse is already doing something pretty spectacular, and that is by capturing the sunlight, using it to heat the air, and keep the plants at a nice, stable and consistent temperature year-round. And that's incredibly important if you have a particularly temperature-sensitive crop that you can't leave out of the open. But that's only so far. Is there a way to also make that sunlight work twice as hard? Now, the important part to remember here is that when plants absorb sunlight for photosynthesis, they only need some certain wavelengths of light. So, if it's possible to use the remaining wavelengths of light for photovoltaics, then you could get an added energy boost. Now, important thing to remember is that plants don't need all types of light in order to produce and undergo photosynthesis. In fact, they only need some specific wavelengths, which means the rest of the spectrum. 
Well, that could be used for other purposes. If you were able to engineer a solar cell that could allow light to pass through, particularly those wavelengths that the plants need to survive, then the rest could be used to turn into electricity. Now, the best way to do that wouldn't be using, obviously, conventional photovoltaics because they're opaque, more or less, and don't let much light through, let alone the tuned specific frequencies that you need. However, what you could do instead is use organic solar cells because you could tune into those organic solar cells the specific wavelengths of light that you want and the ones that you want to let through. So, how much energy could a greenhouse recover if they use these semi-transparent wavelength selective organic solar cells? So the researchers built a pretty intense computational model to estimate how much energy a greenhouse could produce if it had a roof made of semi-transparent organic cells, and whether that energy would be enough to offset the amount of energy required to keep that greenhouse ticking over. They modelled different greenhouses growing tomatoes in locations all the way from Arizona through to North Carolina and even to Wisconsin. Obviously, in Arizona, you have the baking heat, North Carolina, more variable climate, but in Wisconsin, very cold. So keeping the heat that the tomatoes need to grow is incredibly important. A lot of energy use in greenhouses comes from heating and from cooling. You don't want a tomato, for example, to get baked in the desert-like conditions of Arizona, and you don't want them to freeze in the tundra-like conditions in winter in Wisconsin. So keeping that optimal temperature range for tomato growth is quite important, and that's what greenhouses do. But sometimes they need to supplement that with heating and cooling. So they modelled the location requirements for energy for each of those different test scenarios. Because it's a complicated trade-off between how much light the solar cells absorb and how much you let through to the plants in order to grow. For example, if you sacrifice large amounts of photosynthetic growth, I let less sun through to the tomatoes, well, you can get more power. Well, that's good, but would that actually reduce the yield of your crop? So that's what the researchers are trying to balance out. Now, the interesting part is that the solar cells themselves would be an insulator, which helps keep the greenhouses cooler in summer and traps more warmth in the winter, because that's they reflect infrared light. Now, Sadly, for many greenhouse operators, the trade-off could be a small one. If your greenhouse is in warm or temperate climates, you don't get much bang for your buck for converting the roof into solar cells. Say, Arizona, for example. So, the greenhouse in Arizona could become energy neutral, which means requires no outside source of power, while blocking only 10% of the photosynthetic life band, which means that you know, you would have to make a small sacrifice for the tomatoes, but they would still grow more than enough. But you could generate heaps more and actually act as a generator if you're willing to sacrifice some photosynthetic light. So Arizona, it works out pretty well. But in North Carolina, you have to block around 20% of the photosynthetic light. So there you're losing more and more of that light coming in and you're having to sacrifice more and more going to your plants just to keep it neutral. And for Wisconsin, well, you have to sacrifice almost 50%. And that's because keeping the greenhouse warm in winter requires way too much energy to resist the frozen north sometimes in Wisconsin. So you would need to supplement and use some energy. Even using traditional solar cells, not even these semi-transparent organic cells, pretty much only supply 46% of the greenhouse's energy demand. So what's been interesting to look at here is that there is some benefit, sure, 
from having this combined cell where you let in sunlight and turn it into electricity or let it go through to the plants. But the problem is this kind of hybrid model, somebody has to lose. And in some scenarios, like very cold locations, that trade-off just doesn't make sense. But it's an interesting example of how we can better optimize our crops and our growing to try and get the most out of our farming installations. There's some great research published in the journal Joule. From researchers from North Carolina State University, Eshra Ravanashka, Roland Booth, Carol Saravitz. been harnessing as we spoke about the sun's energy for hundreds and hundreds of millions of years but bacteria have been doing it for even longer and that's what helped generate the breathable oxygen atmosphere that we all take for granted so scientists are trying to understand exactly how this photosynthetic process works and it's one of the most actual areas of study for scientists dating back hundreds of years because we see plants growing and trying to understand why plants grow has long captured the imagination of humans for millennia so we know on on a broad level how it takes place but researchers from u.s department's argonne national laboratory working with researchers from washington university in st louis have been trying to actually watch it take place literally inside a cell because all of this take place in fractions of a second ultra fast where the photosynthetic proteins capture light and then turn it into a series of electron transfer reactions and watching this take place is the key to understanding how this electrons are transferred the movement of the electrons is the crucial part that's what we really don't understand how that work is actually accomplished inside a cell now in photosynthetic organisms these processes begin with absorbing in a single photon of light by pigments which are localized in proteins. Each photon propels an electron across a membrane through a wall located in a specialized compartments within the cell. Now, this separation charge across the membrane, much in the same way as we have a voltage differential, and the stabilization of it is critical to what actually generates the energy for, that fuels cell growth, as lead researcher for Argonne, biochemist Deborah Hansen outlines. So these researchers have been trying to understand how these cells are processed and what that journey of that electron through the cell is. Now, 35 years ago, scientists were able to image and get an idea of the structure and got to learn just how complex and weird it was. And scientists discovered that after the absorption of light, the electron transfer process faces a dilemma. And there are two possible pathways for the electrons to travel. In nature, plants, algae, photosynthetic bacteria, they all just use one of the two options. And sadly, scientists couldn't understand why. What was the specific reason for choosing that particular pathway? They did know that the propulsion electron across the membrane harnesses the energy of the photon, required multiple steps, but they didn't know why the electron transfer process was using this one mechanism when there were other ones available. 
And it's taken three decades to finally get a good look at it. Now, it comes back to, as these scientists have been able to image in great detail, the fact that there's a particular protein complex that they've discovered switches the utilization of the pathways. It enables pathway through one way, through electron transfer, and disables and stops electron from going through another. And plants and bacteria and everything doing this photosynthetic reaction, they've designed this protein complex to behave the way they want it and turn off the other way. So by modifying and editing this complex, they were able to force the electron to go through the bad pathway 90% of the time. And they means that they have really found the key driver for this switchover from one pathway to the next. Now, as to why and how photosynthetic biological processes picked this mechanism and designed this protein complex to enable it, we're not entirely sure. But we now at least know, after 30 years, how these processes are making this decision to switch. And it helps shed light, more or less, on something we've been trying to track down the optimized path for for 30 plus years. This is some great work out of the Argonne National Laboratory, published in the Proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From a better understanding of photosynthesis to finding the best time to use a solar panel on your farm and trying to make solar panels work at night. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.